Hi, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, you'll hear Rebecca's story. She first shared on the podcast in April of 2021. I'm sharing this episode again because it's important to recognize that not all daughters have healthy relationships with their moms. Rebecca was also one of the daughters who shared in the Mother's Day Circle event that I released on the podcast last week in preparation for Mother's Day. Rebecca shares raw and personal stories about how she missed feeling loved by her mom and how that has affected her even more since her mom's death. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review. And now, Rebecca's story. Hello, and welcome to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. I'm your host, Beth, and with me today is Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca and I connected online um, through a mutual group in the fall, and then she started uh, participating in the Daughters Without Moms group on Facebook, and she actually shared some of her thoughts in the Platitudes podcast. So if you're wondering, the voice of Rebecca, here she is again. Um, I'm going to let Rebecca introduce herself and then tell us the story of her journey with her mom, and then I will uh, follow up with some questions at the end, and then we'll let Rebecca tell us where we can find her as well. So thanks for being here, Rebecca. I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much for having me and for this opportunity. Um, I just think the relationships between daughters and moms are so significant. And um, my story with my mom is is a tough one. And um, we talked about how you need to teach from scars and not wounds. I think I'm just barely at the point where it's more of a scar than a wound, but um, yeah. So a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in a blended family as the youngest of eight girls in Michigan. And um, my relationship with my mom was always a bit difficult. Uh, I can only imagine, I used to tell everyone, my dad was a saint because he was the only man with all those women. And my mom was crazy because she had to deal with all of us girls. So um, as a young girl, like a child, I remember um, thinking or being told a lot that I was naughty and I got sent to my room a lot. I never really understood why. And I remember looking back on my early childhood and just thinking that my mom didn't like me. Um, being in a big family and especially being the youngest, I definitely craved attention. I think it was part of, partially a survival mechanism like Kevin and Home Alone. You know, I had to kind of jump around and be like, hey, I'm still here. Don't forget me. Or, you know, I'm hungry. No one's fed me. <laughs> so um, I think that's where I get some of my boisterous and wild personality. And then that also comes definitely from my mom as well. Um, as a teenager, I remember having a deep desire to be seen and loved as probably everyone does at that time. And also probably more so because I was in such a big family. Um, I know in my heart of hearts, I know deep down, I was loved by both of my parents. And from the outside looking in, I had a great childhood. 
uh, we were financially secure. We went to private school. You know, we didn't have to struggle to put food on the table or anything like that. But it was a very chaotic childhood with so many siblings and a big age span um, between myself and the oldest sister is 19 years. And then the blended family dynamics and all of that. Um, but I know that my mom loved me, but her love wasn't ever really communicated in my love language. And I know that she did the best that she could. She got pregnant with her first child when she was 16 and she gave birth to me when she was 32. I have two sons that are three and a half years apart. And sometimes I think that my second child gets the short end of the stick because I'm like, oh, like, are we doing this again? So I cannot imagine baby after baby and then marrying someone that already has children and that dynamic. Um, so I know that her life wasn't easy. Um, I can't imagine how she had to grow up so fast and she kind of missed out on those early teen years and then young adulthood. But um, she was married to her first husband for nine years. And then she got married to my dad when she was about 28. Um, I remember as a young child, I would always bicker with my mom. And I would always tell her that I was moving out when I was 17 and a half. <laughs> and I began saying this as soon as I was old enough to calculate that I would graduate at that age, 17 and a half, I'm moving out. And sure enough, I completed high school. I actually completed it a semester early and I joined the Air Force before I even received my diploma. Um, I served in the Air Force for several years. I got married and I moved to Washington State where I live now and where my husband grew up. And a few years after we moved here, I went to nursing school. And when I graduated, I was in a bind trying to find childcare. My husband worked a job with rotating shifts and I was working night shift and we both had professions that had us working weekends and holidays. And I just thought, man, who am I going to call at 2 a.m. on Christmas morning to babysit my kids? This is going to be a little bit difficult. So by that time, my parents were divorced and my father had died three years prior. He died very tragically in an accident. Um, and my mom was struggling to support herself and it just kind of seemed like a win-win type of situation to bring her out and have her help with my kids and get a fresh start and be able to support her. So when she moved in with us, my boys were six and 10 years old. And when I thought of this idea, not um, very much in depth, <laughs> but when I thought about it and talked with my husband, I remembered her being like Mary Poppins um, to my nieces and nephews when I was growing up. She had more children's books and toys than they had at their home. And it seemed that she just loved being a grandma. But when she moved in with us, she was 64. And I think she had finally hit a point in her life where she was like, woohoo, kids are out of the house. I'm done with this. It's my time to shine and almost relive those teenage years that she didn't have because she was an early mom. Um, so her interest was very much in internet dating. 
and not in being a nanny. <laughs> uh, our mother-daughter roles were completely reversed. And I began saying things like, as long as you live under my roof, and she would be out all hours of the night with who knows when, and I had no idea where she was. Um, so that was an interesting period in our lives. And the tension that we had had previously was kind of reignited and reminded me of why I had moved away 15 years earlier. We had our ups and downs and she ended up moving into her own place just a few miles away from where we lived. And four years later, at the age of 68, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, leukemia, as uh, I listened to Lauren's story on your podcast, um, Lauren talked about how her mom was diagnosed with leukemia and it was a very quick diagnosis to treatment time. And I think that is, there's many different types of leukemia, but I think that is usually the case. At this point in time, I had been a nurse for five years, but I hadn't worked in oncology and I didn't know much about leukemia. Um, I had run a marathon to fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society years prior. And oddly enough, just after my first son was born, I went through many of the steps to be a bone marrow donor as I came up for a perfect match for a complete stranger. That never actually happened. The patient got sick and I'm assuming he died, but it's all kept very confidential in that process. Um, so when my mom was diagnosed, her treatment started immediately. She was going through different rounds of chemo and um, as a nurse and what I know now is that when someone has cancer, there are so many different types and so many different types of treatment so many different types of cancer and so many different types of treatment. So um, for her, her treatment started with one month in the hospital and they called it induction therapy. And she got very, very, very sick and they expected that to happen. And then once she was released, the remainder of her treatment was five more months of a week inpatient in the hospital getting chemotherapy for 24 hours a day for that time. So very intense treatment because leukemia is uh, blood cancer and um, difficult to treat. She did go into remission. And then within just a few months, her leukemia came right back. And we were referred to doctors in Seattle, which is about an hour away from where we live. They said that she needed a full-time live-in caregiver and that she would have to move to Seattle for at least a hundred days in order to get the transplant. So at this point, we didn't really think about how it would go. I was the only daughter that lived in Washington where my mom lived and I was a nurse and it just seemed like I would do it. So I did. <laughs> um, over the course uh, before her bone marrow transplant and uh, the two years of her life with leukemia, she was hospitalized each July and nearly died each July. Um, we had many last hurrahs. Uh, the, you know, she got diagnosed and went immediately into treatment. And then we had like a hurrah that she was done. 
And then when she completed all of her treatments and then when they found a bone marrow match and then all of this stuff and it ended up that we were like, is this going to be the last thing we celebrate? It was um, very, very difficult. Uh, we had many delays in her actually getting the bone marrow transplant. And um, they told us that we would be there for at least 100 days. And we ended up being in Seattle for 10 months. So I moved away from my husband and my children. And I lived with my mom in a one bedroom apartment in Seattle for 10 months. I missed that whole entire school year uh, with my children. Because we did live in Washington, my husband and my kids would come over occasionally for lunch on the weekend or very um, intermittently. I had a sister from Alaska that would fly down for like a holiday weekend and I would get to go home for a couple of days, but that was about it. Um, and during that time, there was definitely increased tension in our relationship. One of my sisters has often said, mom was always on parade and she was, her personality entered the room before she did. And even though I am an extrovert, when we spent all of that time in the cancer center, I think the nurse in me didn't want to stand out, didn't want us to be a show or a spectacle. I just really wanted to blend in. But when I would show up and my mom was wearing a humongous orange sun hat and neon leggings in the middle of Seattle's gray winter, there was no blending in. <laughs> um, and she was known, she was uh, kind of like a movie star there. And with her personality, she really enjoyed her time when she was getting treatment and she was kind of in that in-between space. Getting treatment, she was sick, but when she was healthy enough to kind of get the attention from the staff and the people in the waiting room and all of that, she really liked it. Um, I became her fiercest advocate. I, my job in the Air Force, I was a, a cryptologic Chinese linguist. And so I think language and lingo is one of my things. And then as a nurse, I knew the language that the doctors and the nurses spoke. And oftentimes they would ask my mom questions and she would just turn and look at me. And sometimes I would look back at her and say, well, I don't know if you're in pain. You have to tell them that part, but I can tell them, you know, how she's looked over the last week and all of that kinds of stuff. Um, our journey ended rather abruptly in Seattle. She got the bone marrow transplant, her leukemia was gone, but anybody that has uh, any knowledge about a bone marrow transplant, especially when it is from a donor that is not yourself, because you can donate your own cells and they can do things like that for you for some types of leukemia and other diseases. But my mom got stem cells from a stranger in Europe. And um, they really have to watch that your body doesn't react to that. And so there's a lot, a lot of complications and um, you basically are given a whole brand new baby immune system. And she was diagnosed with leukemia at 68. She got her bone marrow transplant right after her 70th birthday. And um, she died I think it was about 
six months after. So um, after she died and I moved back home with my family, I had so much to process. Um, I started going to counseling and the counselor heard my story and said, you know, wow, you've been through a lot. What are you doing to fill your cup? And I was like, what do you mean? What cup? <laughs> and I didn't even realize um, that I had literally poured out everything I had for my mom. And so many people, uh, when I tell that story, they don't understand how I could move away from my husband and kids to take care for her, take to care for her. But in the moment and without, you know, a whole lot of time to really sit and think and process it, it seems like the only logical option. It didn't even really seem like I had a choice. Um, if I had said no and no one else stepped in, then she wouldn't have the chance to get the treatment that was possibly the only thing that would have saved her life. So I do have seven sisters, but the majority of them had strange relationships with my mom or they were completely estranged from her and none of them lived in Washington. So several of my sisters had hard boundaries with my mom, but even in our most difficult times, I couldn't ever imagine a life without her in it. I couldn't cut her out. She was my mom. I never could cut all ties with her. I think looking back at that situation, the subconscious reason that I gave up so much for her was that I was trying to earn her love. I felt like this was my last chance, a last ditch effort to receive it. And then she died and I had this huge hole left in my heart, knowing deep down that she did love me, but never really feeling like she did. And now she's gone and there's nothing I can do to get that feeling. Um, I shared my video with you, Beth, of our journey. We very foolishly, when she got diagnosed with leukemia, we didn't know that what the treatment even looked like. We didn't know how intense it was. And so we just started a tradition that anytime she had an appointment, a transfusion, if she was hospitalized and I would go in and see her, we would take a picture together. And even when she was not feeling it, we smiled and I tell everyone we made leukemia look good. <laughs> like if you look at those, um, that video of all the slides, we're smiling and it looks like we're having fun. And that is such the problem with social media because you do see that highlight reel, but it literally might be that she was like vomiting or feeling awful. And I'd be like, but mom, we got to take our picture. And so we'd muster up the smile and then maybe fall completely apart behind it. So after she died, um, I had this whole group of people that I was acquaintances with that thought the picture that we painted was this amazing mother-daughter relationship. And I shared on your platitudes post that, you know, people struggle to kind of ask you how you're doing after the death of someone or a diagnosis because they're afraid that they'll remind you of it. Well, I dealt with some of that, but more I dealt with kind of like this 
imposter facade. Cause when you see someone at the grocery store that your friends on Facebook with, but not, they don't really know the whole story. They would say like, Oh, you must be devastated. And I was like, yes, I'm devastated, but not in the way that you think I am. And then that brought a whole feeling of being selfish. Like it felt when I vocalize those feelings, it sounds like, oh, I'm not grieving my mom. I'm just grieving the fact that she didn't love me, but I know she loved me. And it's so much more than that. And I can't just say that when you're walking past me in the cereal aisle at Fred Meyer. (laughs) So, um, so I spent a lot of time being very angry, um, being angry that I gave so much and then felt like I didn't get what I was working towards. Um, my husband and I had a conversation one time when I just completely fell apart and I had been gone for the better part of a year and been very absent, even though I was at home because I was caring for my mom for the year prior, I came back, I moved back home and I thought just everything would fall into place and it wasn't that easy. And I realized at that point that that had been such a huge thing that I had done and a huge sacrifice for my husband and for my kids. And that brought a whole wave of guilt and emotion. Um, And I told my husband, I said, you know, thank you so much for supporting me and for allowing me to do that. Because I realize now that if you said, I'm going to go leave to take care of one of my parents, I would say, no way. Like we can't survive without you. What the heck am I supposed to do? And he gave me that opportunity. So, um, I think during that time, while I was grieving the loss of my mother, I was primarily grieving the lost opportunity to feel loved by her. And then the sadness and the anger was there for a few years and the struggles to climb out of that valley that I was in. And, um, I think that moment of my life was probably the most rock bottom that I had ever experienced and, uh, was just really hard. So now, like I look at things like that slideshow picture video that I made of us and I see her spunk and I see how hard she fought. I hate to use the journey of, or the terminology. And there's even been papers on like saying someone battled cancer or they fought because then it means that they didn't fight hard enough if they died or if they choose not to go with treatment that, um, you know, they weren't a fighter or whatever, but my mom was like, she did not realize that she was a mortal creature (laughs) and kind of like that, um, invincibility we have as teenagers where like, nothing's going to get me, uh, right. When she got diagnosed with leukemia, she had been, she was almost 70 years old at the time. And she had been working with a pickaxe in her front yard, like swinging it and chopping up the land because she wanted to have a garden. And one thing that is um, noted in leukemia is the fact that because it's a blood cancer, it messes with your platelets, which are your ability to clot. And that was one of the first signs that she had something wrong with her. She was very tired, but she said, I seem to be bruising a lot. Maybe I'm taking too much fish oil or something. 
And she showed me her arm that had, you know, one little small bruise. And I thought, okay, that's nothing. But then when she got the call um, from her doctor, she thought she was sick and they drew some labs. And then they called her when those labs came back and they said, get to the emergency room right away because her platelet level was 14 and normal is like 150 to 400 and it's measured in thousands. So like 150,000 to 400,000 and hers was 14. Um, when your platelet level gets below 10, they put you on neuro checks and all kinds of things because you can develop spontaneous like brain bleeds or um, people's eyes can start bleeding. They can have nose bleeds, all kinds of stuff. So she's out there with this hard yard tool doing all kinds of crazy stuff and she's sick. Um, and then just throughout her treatment, she did so much and was always like, go, go, go. I remember calling the hospital and the nurse navigator and saying, um, once they knew she had leukemia, as long as she had platelets above 10,000, she was okay. She didn't need a transfusion or anything. But if you or I that don't have leukemia had platelets that low, it would be like, whoa, stop emergency room. Um, so I was trying to understand that in the beginning. And I told the nurse, you don't understand. This is not your typical, like almost 70 year old cancer patient. She's not going to go home and just nap away the day. She's probably got her passport in her purse and she might go skydiving tomorrow. Like that is the kind of lady she was. <laughs> and so, um, when she was sick, it also, had us revert to, um, I was the mother and she was the child because I would get so mad at her for trying to go shopping because she had no immune system. And she'd say, well, I go at four in the morning when no one's in Walmart. And I was like, do you not think that they like sneeze and touch the cart and <laughs> all of that stuff? So, um, she was a hoot and everyone that knew her knew that about her. Uh, and like I said, I do go back and just think, wow, her life journey was so different than mine. And um, I can imagine that she was exhausted by the time I was born. I would be. <laughs> um, I could not have that many children, let alone that many girls. And um, then it's allowed me to just reflect on my own relationship with my children who are both boys. So I know we don't have that mother daughter dynamic, but I hope uh, throughout our relationship that they just know how much I love them. Um, and I was hesitant to kind of share this story because when I share these emotions, it makes me feel like a bad person. And I thought, there's got to be all depths of women listening to your podcast that there are the people that have their mom as their best friend. There's people that their mom was their worst enemy and people that never knew their mom and all in between. Um, so I thought just to give some feedback back to that community and to know, I think one of the differences between being a mom and being a dad is you could potentially be a father and not ever know, but you always know if you're a mother, <laughs> um, you can't give birth to a child and not really know. So 
uh, I think just mothers love their daughters. There's that pressure and that stress of society to be the perfect mother, to have it all together. Um, there's that stress on us, whether we work or we don't work, do we stay at home? Is this the thing? But I think no matter what kind of relationship you had with your mom, I would like everyone listening to know that there's love behind that. Um, I know that I am guilty of not always showing my love in the way that I want people to receive it. Or um, sometimes with my own kids, that love looks like, did you do your homework? And they're like, oh, hi, mom. You know, <laughs> so it's not always easy to communicate, but um, I think it's always there. And we're all broken, beautiful people, and we share it however we know best and how it comes through our family lineage. Um, so yeah, that is basically my story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm so glad that you felt comfortable to do that because it's true that every there's ever going to be every different kind of faceted relationship between a mom and a daughter with the audience that's listening to us. So thank you for <clears throat> putting yourself into that uncomfortable space um, and doing that and sharing it because I know that your story will resonate um, with people. And the other thing, I think, I think maybe it was on your website. I saw you had quoted Glennon Doyle Melton. Mm. And one of my favorite things from her book is she said, you know, I never made great friends at the playground by like bragging about all the good parts of my life and the mm -hmm. things that I had done great. But when I was will, willing to unfold and be vulnerable and honest about, you know, some of the hard things that were going on in my life, mm -hmm. that's when I really, you know, made some deep connections. So, right. <clears throat> so I, you know, it is hard stuff, but that's, that's mm -hmm. my purpose in this podcast is just for people to not feel so alone, to know that I don't think there is any perfect mother daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, um, you know, there used to be this, the, 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 June Cleaver, the the Beaver. Wait, yeah, leave it to Beaver. <laughs> leave it to the Beaver. Cle yes, the Cleaver family. That there was this, you know, this faux pas of a of a normal type of family. And quite honestly, in our culture, I feel like dysfunction is the norm now. I don't mm -hmm. feel like there is really that that um, opportunity for that leave it to Beaver kind of uh, family style. Right. I don't. I don't really think it's achievable. Anyways. Um, but um, I, I was really interested in your part of when you talked about that you were um, feeling selfish after you lost your mom, that, you know, um, this imposter kind of facade of the relationship that you had with your mom. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything that counseling provided for you that helped with you to process that? I think some of it was feeling selfish. Um, because I felt it, there's a whole grief cycle, right? Yes. Um, and it just goes around and around. It is not linear and it is not <laughs> anything straightforward. So I think I felt selfish because I felt angry that something was taken away from me. And it was that missed opportunity for love. I felt that stronger in the moment than I felt sadness that my mom lost her life. And that was the part that was like, oh, that feels 
ugly. That feels like, and not something like Glennon Doyle. She talks about how she's done different things and even how she became, um, how she started her blog was that Facebook post that she's famous for about like the 25 things about you. Mm-hmm. And her number six was something about like being a recovering bulimic and alcoholic and missing booze the same way that you can repeatedly miss someone that's beat you and left you for dead. Like, woo, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. But then she looked at her friends and her friends. Number six was, I like hummus. And so, so this feeling and having to wear this, um, facade or this, whatever of being like, yes, I'm grieving, but I'm not grieving in the way that you think I'm grieving. And so that must be wrong because I'm seeing you in the grocery store and you're like, oh, your mom was so wonderful. And I was like, but you don't even know, I never felt loved and that's not what you got in the Facebook pictures. Um, so going through counseling, I realized what a gift it was that I gave to my mom. Yes. And then I think also just when I look back, I am so glad that we took those pictures. And when I look back at them, I can remember each moment. Um, there's one where I think it was I think it was on her 70th birthday, she had a feeding tube, a nasogastric feeding tube that went through her nose um, and was kind of taped on her cheek and it went down to her stomach so she could get like formula fed that way. And I said, mom, let's take our picture. And she said, I don't want anyone to see this thing. I look like I have a straw in my nose. So I took a straw, a bendy straw, and I put it in my nose and I said, no, this is what you look like if you have a straw in your nose. Um, And then uh, it's taken a bit, but with counseling and processing and also just kind of uh, realizing like my grief doesn't have to be how the person that I'm an acquaintance with thinks it should be. (laughs) Um, and I can kind of wear that facade while in, uh, the grocery store and be like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but deep down I'm allowed to feel and process whatever I need to, to move through it. Um, but that journey made me a phenomenal nurse from doing that with my mom. Mm -hmm. And that is a gift that I can just keep on giving to every patient that I care for. Um, I realize how, when you're diagnosed with cancer, so much of your life is taken, even if it's, um, a good diagnosis and your treatment is, you know, something that we're sure will cure your cancer. Your time is not your own. You spend time in getting blood draws and getting chemotherapy or radiation or surgery and, that is my biggest stress I put on myself as an infusion nurse is I see the patient and I'm like, we got to go, we got to get them going. They can't sit here for all this time and just waste time and their life is precious and it's ticking by. Mm -hmm. But also I look at the caregiver with them and I say, I'm so sorry that this chair isn't comfortable and you must be exhausted. Do you need a warm blanket? Can I bring you a cup of water? Don't forget to hydrate. You got to take care of yourself so you can take care of them. And none of that would I 
feel the way that I feel. And it has like literally become a part of me because of that journey. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a gift now that you can give that back to others. Right. Um, because that's one of the things that I wrote down is, you know, what can we do for the support people? Like you just mentioned, you know, are you staying hydrated? How are you doing? I'm sorry, the chair is uncomfortable. Um, I journeyed with my sister for a lot of the last year of her uh, battle with cancer. And um, the one of the things I experienced was not only then the loss of my sister, but there's a little, and this had to have been for you because you were all in with being your mom's advocate. Um, that you lose a little part of your identity when you're so far Mm -hmm. deep into that role of being the advocate and the support person. Mm -hmm. I mean, now not only is your mom physically gone from your life, but the appointments and the blood draws and the pharmacy pickups and all of those things where even on the days when you didn't have something on the schedule, you were anticipating what was coming up either later that week or the next time, you know, she was going to be in the hospital for a week for her treatment. Um, that's also that I, you know, as being a support person left behind, uh, that was that was something that's difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably like harder on my brother-in-law, someone who, you know, um, that when he lost his wife, he also lost that whole part. She it was a ten-year battle for her, so it was a mm-hmm. big part of the journey and our identity. Um, and so I feel like, you know, there's, there, there should be some sort of support group for the support people left behind. Yeah. Um, and there is bereavement services, but it's a different type of animal. I, I, I know you get it. I yes. Know you get I've it. talked with, um, NICU nurses that this, you know, people have a baby and then it's in the NICU for so long. And when they graduate from the NICU, it's like, yay, this is a great thing. And the parents don't want them to leave not only partially because I think they're scared to go on to the next step without them with their fragile baby, not being cared for by hospital staff, but also that's just like, that is your identity. And when I came home from um, caring for my mom, one of the posts that I put on Facebook and Instagram was a picture that my sister-in-law had taken from behind me. So you could see my back and I was looking out at the sunset And I just captioned it and I said, what do you do when you forget who you are? And um, Glennon Doyle also talks about that in her books about how as women, we put on so many hats and so many titles like little Russian nesting dolls. Mm -hmm. But if you are not a mother anymore or your kids move out or you quit your day job, you know, if I am not a nurse, who am I at the center of that? And that became my identity. I was my mom's caregiver, her cheerleader, her personal nurse, her everything. And then I wasn't. And I was like, oh yeah, what do I do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was hard. Mm -hmm. And just giving yourself grace through that time and realizing like, that's not weird to miss, you know, the, the routine of treatment and all of that. Like it, it, just as your schedule, it's at first, when you start that schedule, it's terrifying and awful. And then you just adjust because that's what we do in life, right? Mm -hmm. We just go with whatever gets thrown our way. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, you, you mentioned this, that, um, 
about the gift that you did give your mom. Cause I wrote down, give yourself credit for giving your mom the stage at the end of her life. Like we, what you were talking about, her spunk and her personality and her showing up as a movie star mm-hmm. um, to treatment and things like you did, you provided that for her and you played along, which didn't mm-hmm. sound like it might've always been, you know, part of your choice, because like you said, you were trying to be respectful of the nursing pro- profession and stay on the down low, but she wasn't having it, having it that way. So, nope. um, you know, you provided that stage for her to shine and be herself and mm-hmm. you know, show up in the way that, that honored her, um, you know, even though you were, you were struggling with that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that if, if you've been able to recognize that and give yourself some, some credit for doing that for her in the midst of you still looking for the love that mm-hmm. you didn't feel like you received. Um, right. What did they say? It's not what you're taught. It's what's caught. And so I think that is a big part of my journey is to go, yes, your mom loved you. Like, don't keep replaying that tape in your head. Also just, Hey, Rebecca, make sure your kids know that you love them. We were both, um, fully on with that, um, platitudes podcast. So you and Mm -hmm. I both agree that those are, there's lots of things that people can say. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things in my life with losing my mom young is that I'm very intentional about telling people that I love them and that I care about them. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the midst of, you know, doing all this hard work myself. I'm, I'm doing this program with four ladies and, and I'm, teaching the material, but I'm also doing it myself. And I've had lots of moments where my kids are probably like, oh boy, here comes another like, you know, five minute Snapchat for mom, because (laughs) I'll be like on walks and stuff. And I'll be like, listen, whatever stories you guys are putting in your head that you think I'm saying about you, it's not true. (laughs) I only love you. And I only want what's best for you and for you, not because I want something for you, but for what you want. But I have developed that ability to be vulnerable without much guilt or shame about Mm -hmm. it. I'm, I'm willing to put it all out there and, you know, say what I need to say and hope that, that they are able to receive it and, and not think that it's just mom having one of her moments. So you said, you know, you didn't receive the, the love from your love language. I love it when someone says like, you're doing a good job. And, um, I think in her journey with me as her caregiver, part of that was very hard. She did thank me. Um, but part of that, I think she felt guilt for taking me from my family and, you know, I can look into that too. I am as a nurse and I'm also just an empath. And, um, I did say it in, when we were talking earlier about, I can't imagine how my mom's life was, I can imagine. And that is one of my platitudes also is when someone says, I can't imagine what you're going through. I'm like, you can't because (laughs) I definitely can. Like I can imagine what it's like if my house were to burn down or if this awful thing were to happen, (laughs) I can imagine that I don't want to, but I can. (laughs) So So tell people a little bit like what you have done um, with this portion of your journey, because it's phenomenal that you joined the Air Force at 17 and a half, and then you did that. And uh, I will I will share all this information that you're getting ready to tell us. Um, but when I, when I look at your bio on your website, you know, you did some emergency room nursing for a while. And um, I feel like, you know, well, you talk about it in there. I'll let you say it about how this has led you to where you are today and what you're doing with that today. 
Yes. So when I came back home from being in Seattle after my mom had died, one of my um, friends that is also a nurse and always has been this entrepreneur mindset, um, she says, hey, do you want to start a business? And at that point, when I first came back, I could like I was barely surviving and we did paint this great picture on Facebook, you know, so it looked like I just had the time of my life for the last two years, um, but I was barely functional. And then I did rush back into the nursing workforce. Um, and that probably wasn't the best decision to take on a high stress job. I did apply at Starbucks a lot. And I told my husband, I would just love to socialize and and make coffee and registered nurse RN often stands for refreshments and narcotics. Like I could do the refreshments part, but the narcotics takes a little bit more brain power to make sure you're dishing them out appropriately. But, um, so he, Starbucks never hired me. He said, you're overqualified. They won't hire you. And I was like, I just need an in-between. So I hadn't had an income for a year. And then we were not only managing our household and my mom's household, but then this other apartment and all these expensive treatments in Seattle. So we made it. Um, but afterwards I was like, okay, I got to jump back into work. And my friend said, do you want to start a business? And I just was like, you are so funny <laughs> and just <laughs> blew her off. And then she, her wheels kept turning in her brain and it was almost exactly a year ago. It was February 9th, um, 2020. She called me. I think she was getting ready for work and I might've been getting ready for church or something. And she said, Hey, there's gotta be something else we can do. And I don't know, I must've been that far in my journey that I could think now and could start to dream. Um, but I just had this light bulb and I was like, you know, when I cared for my mom, I noticed how, because she had me as her advocate and because I was a nurse and I spoke the language, her treatment seemed a little different, not like it was better or she got different treatment that someone else wouldn't have, but we would go to an appointment and I had this calendar, which we actually have a picture of it on our website under our story because that's where it started. I said, I bought this calendar and it was big enough to just write everything in. And when you're going through a bone marrow transplant, you have like six different appointments a day and then they change them and then this happens. So just to keep track of all that. But I also started because I was a nurse writing down things like, oh, she might have a UTI and they tested her urine. Oh yeah. She started on an antibiotic. They switched it this day. And I would highlight those things in the calendar. So then when we would go talk to these doctors who at this university hospital were always rotating and you didn't see the same face for very long, they would say, you know, what happened? And I just flip my calendar two pages back and I would be able to tell the infectious disease doctors the thing that the transplant team knew or the this doctor about that and connect all the dots because so many people think, well, it's in your electronic medical record, but the way that our healthcare system works in the US, you get 10 minutes with your doctor. They don't have time to read, you know, two years or like in your case, your sister's 10 years of history. How did this start? So, um, so I was like, you know, maybe we could make a 
journal or something for patients. And we just started thinking. And originally that was going to be our goal. We were going to make a journal and we were going to make some educational content and we were going to be the tour guides through the healthcare system. And our business was going to be called your healthcare compass. And then my friend went through a journey. Um, well, she got COVID because that's right when all COVID started. I finished going to school online <laughs> during a pandemic. Um, and then all the things with kids being at home and this and that. And um, my business partner's father had metastatic pancreatic or not pancreatic, uh, metastatic prostate cancer. And so she was spending more time with him and then he passed away in October and then we just went crazy. And, um, our business is now called live well, RN, RN for, you know, the fact that we're registered nurses, but also for right now, we want you to live well right now. Don't delay it. And, um, we very much want to empower people to take charge of their healthcare we want to be that kind of virtual handholder so that when people have questions, um, like I can't even imagine going through what I went through with my mom and not having the knowledge that I have. Um, so you can Google, you can, you know, search online, but how do you know what is true and what's not true? Or how do you not know that this little thing that is a headache is not brain cancer because that's what your Google search led you to, you know? Mm -hmm. um, we want people to know that it's their body that we're treating. And so while you may not be the medical expert as the patient, you are the expert of your body. Mm -hmm. um, and I have just realized things like all the things that I do because I saw the patient and caregiver side when I was with my mom and taking care of her that like, there's things that I do now. Um, when I go to check someone's blood pressure and I go to put the blood pressure cuff on, I don't just touch them and do it. I always ask because I know like, can I take it on your right arm? Sometimes they might have something called a fistula, which means you should never squeeze that with a blood pressure cuff. And also a lot of breast cancer patients have had lymph nodes removed and they might not be thinking about it, but when you ask, it gives them that opportunity. And then also I'm going to touch your body just because I'm a nurse doesn't give me the right to just start doing things. Like, is it okay with you? If I do this, I wouldn't just show up at your house and just walk right in. Mm -hmm. I would knock on the door first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, a lot of that stuff and this, as we started talking and we started brainstorming, we started thinking the big aha, I said, my mom tried to die every July and then she finally did. Um, the year before she died, she was hospitalized with a neutropenic fever. So with leukemia or really any cancer treatment, um, a lot of times when you get chemo, it knocks down your defense system, your army to fight for any signs of infection. And then you get a fever, which kind of tips them off to something's going on, but they have to put all the puzzle pieces together to figure out what it is. So she was hospitalized, I think at that point for about a month. And that's when I saw a big, um, 
noticed just a big, how my nursing knowledge affects everything and saw the caregiver side, but I was a nurse and I was like, Whoa. So I was in the hospital room with her and things were getting worse and worse. They couldn't figure out what kind of infection she had or where it was coming from. They kept loading her up on fluids and adding new antibiotics and antivirals and antifungals. And they wouldn't quit one of them because maybe it was the right one, but it, her body just hadn't responded yet. And they gave her a shot of Neupogen, which just kind of helps build your white blood cell count. They usually don't do that for leukemia, but they were kind of desperate and thought maybe this will help. Um, at the time, she didn't have hardly any platelets. And so that little shot, which is just under the skin, ended up giving her a bruise from her belly button all the way to the mid back. And at the same time, she gained a ton of weight from all that fluid, but she had this bruise. So that kind of camouflaged the fluid that she was holding in her body. So I kept saying, she can't breathe very well. And now she's on more oxygen and now she can barely get out of bed to sit on the commode right next to her bed. And they were like, yeah, yeah. You know, they, it wasn't, they didn't treat her well. They, they were doing everything they could, but I realized as a nurse, when you get shift report and you come in and you see this sick lady, that's just who, you know, that's the picture you have painted in your head. And then you come back the next day or you get report from a different nurse and they say, you know, yeah, this lady's sick and this is what's going on. So it wasn't like a surprise to them how she looked, but to me, I finally started speaking up and I said, this is a lady that does not stop talking. Like you have to back out of the room slowly and she's still talking to you. And right now she's not talking because she can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And I said, just last week when she got chemo, she was doing laps because they encourage patients to walk and they would give them something to hang on their door for every lap. I said, she was doing laps in high heels with her chemo pump, because that is the kind of person she was. Mm-hmm. And I said, she can't get out of bed. Like something's wrong. And at first they didn't listen to me. And then I ended up diagnosing a bunch of things that were happening with her. I caught it when her heart rate Um, or when her heart rhythm went into atrial fibrillation, I helped them diagnose her congestive heart failure, but they didn't realize that because they didn't have the backstory. Mm -hmm. And that was the huge, like, Whoa, we see these patients, we see them for so little time and yeah, they might be the sick lady, but who were they yesterday? Like, is this their baseline? And, and so, um, that was a big aha moment. And then just realizing that there is the need that I don't ever want anyone to go away feeling scared or lonely, or, um, I definitely, you know, I said, I tried to speak up for my mom and it was a little bit difficult for me. Um, but I think even in my own body, I wouldn't say like, Hey, this isn't okay with me or whatever, you know, we tend to be agreeable and we tend Mm -hmm. to also give healthcare workers the power. Mm -hmm. And I want people to be like, no, it's your body. It's okay. And Mm -hmm. like Lauren's story, her mom chose not to do the bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. And I've reached out to her and shown her our video. And I said, you know, your mom didn't make the wrong decision. There is no right or wrong in this, but 
this was hard. And so sometimes as healthcare workers, we say, this is what you have to do. And we might give that message that if you don't choose to do this, that's not the right thing, but it's your body. So you get to choose what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm, that's just phenomenal. And I think um, we will talk about this offline, but I think I would like to have you back to talk about that more in depth. Also, just because of now with the pandemic, like think about if your mom had gone through that whole year or I know you were there at least a year Mm -hmm. without you by her side, which is what is happening to people now. Mm -hmm. Um, And how can you be your own best self-advocate when you're, you know, like the point where you're describing your mom on all those fluids and antibiotics and stuff that she wasn't even herself. Mm -hmm. How can you expect them to be their own best advocate? And I'm actually extremely concerned about, you know, the ramifications of that long-term with these people who are in the hospitals by themselves and dying by themselves. And Mm -hmm. that just breaks my heart. Um, So the only, you know, I'm also, I'm also a huge advocate of preventative care, not just reactive Mm -hmm. care. And I think that you, you and your partner, you know, sound like you basing a lot of your information in that also, and being your own best self advocate and knowing yourself. So I would love to have you back and have you talk about that more in depth, because even if we're daughters without moms, we still have um, families and communities Mm -hmm. that we're a part of and that we we care about. And um, for me, just sharing information is is just if it brings awareness to one person who needs to hear it, then it's certainly well worth it. Um, Yeah. And yours is, is some really good, some really good uh, information. Yeah. One of the tips that we have on our website and we made a little YouTube video that you can find in a guide on the top five tips to get the best care at your doctor's office. One of them says like right now in COVID, you can't often go with someone when they are going to see their oncologist for the first time. And so we encourage people to like, ask the doctor, can I call my daughter or my sister or my wife, whatever, you know, um, on the phone so that if they're not physically present, they can hear the conversation because those conversations around intensive treatment around, um, end of life stuff, you hear one thing and the person with you, hears a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And when you get that heavy information, sometimes you don't hear anything after. So, um, you know, that can help, that can Mm -hmm. be an option. And even like as being, as I was the person who was hearing it, in addition to my sister, I still, I have a whole book of, Mm -hmm. I wrote everything down because her husband, um, if he wasn't there, I knew he was going to want all the nitty gritty details and things. So, I mean, I have just notes and notes and pages of notes in this black book that's in my purse from, from when I would go to um, appointments and treatments with her, because even if I would have heard it, trying to regurgitate it hours later than after we had actually had the procedure or done everything else, you know, it's just mm-hmm. not, um, it's just not the same as being able to be a, a valid set of ears mm-hmm. with, with the person receiving the care. So, so I, we're going to have you back as uh, not Rebecca, the daughter without the mom, but Rebecca, the daughter without the mom that then took her information to help uh, start a new journey and a new business, uh, live well, live well RN. Um, and I will put all that information in the show notes so that people can find you um, 
and see what you're doing, but I definitely would like to have you back to talk about that even more. Wonderful. Yeah. It would be my pleasure. Great. So I usually ask people to leave with a, you know, if you had something that you learned or a tidbit of advice and, you know, we all have recognized that our journeys are all different and nobody's grief is linear, but just something that you would want to share with the Daughters Without Moms community. I think just that um, recognizing if you didn't overtly feel the love, it was there. Mm -hmm. You were created from love. You are loved. You're worthy of love. Um, And then whatever your grief journey is, oh, we are so set in our society, I think, of like, you know, it's been a week, it's been a month, it's been however long, like I should be over this or I should be functional. Grief is, like we said, not linear. You can be okay. And at any point in the time after, you can be like, whoa, that blindsided me. Um, And I think it's so important to feel your feelings when you just stuff them down or um, don't acknowledge them, don't feel them. They're just going to sit there and (laughs) keep trying to bubble up until you do give them the time of day. So just love yourself in the process. Maybe even give yourself the love that you felt you didn't get. Or if you had a wonderful loving relationship with your mom, but now she's gone. Um, and you are coming from that place of lack there, give yourself the love that she would have given you, you know, take yourself out to lunch and be like, Hey, this one's on mom. Even if you're paying for it yourself. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Um, I've really appreciated hearing your story and getting to know you. And I really have deep gratitude for what you're continuing to do uh, within your nursing journey and the Live Well community to provide that support and space for others. And I look forward to having you back. If you liked this episode or you are a fan of the show, the best way to support it is to share it on social media and with your family and friends. For more of my thoughts on the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. As always, remember, we can use grace, grit, and gratitude to grow with our grief.